We'll look at two passages this morning for our scripture text. Let me turn this down. The first is 1 Chronicles 29, 11 through 13, and then Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which is uh, a very long sentence. Let's hear the word of God. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. And then from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we pray now that you would indeed be with us as we study your word this morning. We pray that we might be open to the truth of your word, that we might be not mere hearers, but also doers of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, I went to see a woman who had visited our church several times, and she had not been raised in a Presbyterian church, and so she had a lot of questions about what we believed. And she began by saying, Now, you Presbyterians... Uh, don't you kind of believe in, uh, well, whatever will be, will be. 
which I call the Doris Day School of Reformed Theology. Now, for those of you who are a little too young to remember Doris Day, 50 or 60 years ago, she was sort of the Meg Ryan or the Jennifer Aniston of her day, but she could sing. So, you know, she wasn't seductive like a Marilyn Monroe or Angelina Jolie. She was the kind of girl that you would bring home to mom and dad and and you would marry and you would have a family with and live happily ever after. And so in one of her movies, uh, she sang this song. I was going to sing it for you. I know you're disappointed. I worked on it all week, but I've got this little thing in my throat. So I'm just going to read the words to Kesara When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? And here's what she said to me. Kesara Sara. Some of you want to sing it, I know. <laughs> Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Kesara Sara. What will be, will be. When I was young, I fell in love. I asked my sweetheart, what lies ahead? Will we have rainbows day after day? Here's what my sweetheart said. Kesara, Sara. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Kesara, Sara. What will be, will be. And of course, when this scene uh, took place in the movie, she was about to put a little boy to bed or son to bed. And she sings, now I have children of my own. They asked their mother, what will I be? Will I be handsome? Will I be rich? I tell them tenderly, Kesara, Sara. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Kesara, Sara. What will be, will be. And this was this woman's understanding of Reformed theology. <laughs> it's a start. It's a start. Um, but uh, the biblical teaching of the sovereignty of God is far, far richer. Far, far richer. Can I just say as an aside that uh, when uh, Doris Day first sang that song, she did it in one take and she said, that's the last you'll ever hear me sing that song. Of course, it went on to be the best uh, best song of the year that year, uh, won Oscar for best song of the, of the year, and it became her signature song, and it was the theme song of her TV show and everything else. That's the way, like, what will be, will be. Um, the sovereignty of God. We are kind of known for that in the Presbyterian Church and in Reformed theology. Sometimes that's all we're known for. But it certainly is part of what we're known for. And so this morning I want to look at four, four principles, four, four aspects of the sovereignty of God, four things that the sovereignty of God means for us. And obviously we're going to be moving fast. And if you're wanting all of your questions answered, well, you'll have to come to a Sunday school class next winter because we're not going to be able to do that this morning. But the sovereignty of God means, first of all, that he is supremely exalted over all of his creation. He is supremely exalted above all of his creation. The word sovereign has its roots in Latin and Old French, and it basically means super ruler. The God we worship is a sovereign God. He's a super ruler. 
And so this is what we see proclaimed throughout the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament in the text that we just read. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. And then in Psalm 22, verse 28, we read, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he founded it on the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth is the Lord's. Everything in the earth belongs to him. He is the super ruler. He is the sovereign God. And so in Psalm 46, 10, we read, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 47, 2 says, For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. And Psalm 47, 7 and 8 says, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. In Jeremiah Chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, we read, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? And then, in the text that we read this morning, or just beneath the text, beyond the text that we read, in Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 19, we read about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which his body, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. God is a sovereign God. He is a sovereign king. He is a super ruler over all the earth. And I don't think you can get a fuller depiction of that than in the title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which appears three times in the scripture. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16, we read, He, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And, 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 and so if you, if you go this Christmas season or at some other time and you see a, a presentation of Handel's Messiah and you get 
to the Hallelujah Chorus, uh, there's a reason why people stand when those stirring words are sung. King of kings, Lord of lords, hallelujah. He's a sovereign God. One more passage I'd like to read for you because I think it depicts not only, it not only talks about our Lord is the King of kings and Lord of lords, but it, 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 it presents an unforgettable picture. And that's in Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Diadems are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The sovereignty of God means, first of all, that the God that we worship is a, is, is a, is a great God. And he is, he is supremely exalted over all of his creation. Secondly, secondly this morning, the sovereignty of God means that God is completely free and I would add to, and able to do whatever he wills. He is completely free and able to do whatever he wills. There's, there's a certain sense in the term sovereignty that that God is 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 free to do what he knows is right to do what he knows is best to do and so we read in Psalm 115 verses 2 and 3 why should the nation say where is their God which is what the nations of the ancient world said about the Jews because they all had their idols and they could show you their idols in their temples but they would say to the Jews, where's your God? Where is he? And here was the answer. Our God is in the heavens. But then the psalmist adds, he does all that he pleases. He's not only in the heavens, he's not only supremely exalted, he does whatever he wants to do. Because he's a sovereign God. Psalm 135, 5 and 6 says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on the earth, in the seas, and in all deeps. He does whatever He wants to do. He's a sovereign God. And so in Isaiah 46, we read verses 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my all, all, all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is able. God is free to do whatever he wants to do and he is able to bring it to pass. No one can thwart his plan. And there's this image that we find in the scriptures of God as the potter. And so in Isaiah 64, we read, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter, and we are all the work of your hand. And so we see God compared to the potter. And, and he can do with the clay as he wishes. And whatever he wishes, because he's a skilled potter, He's, he's a great potter, and, and he can fashion the clay in any way that he wants to. And we see this elaborated on in Jeremiah chapter 18, uh, and I'll read some of this. In Jeremiah 18, beginning with verse 1, we read, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise. And go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do it. But God is pictured here as the potter. He is in control. He can make whatever he wants to out of the clay. And uh, if it doesn't turn out right, he can rework it because he is the potter, and we are the clay. Now, you might be thinking, well, I, I don't know, I don't know about this. You know, if God is completely free and able to do whatever he wants to do, that's a little bit scary. But this is why I preached on the goodness of God last week. Because you see, you have to be absolutely convinced of the goodness of God before you can accept the sovereignty of God. Because if God is not completely 
good and righteous and holy and beautiful and perfect, his sovereignty would be a pretty scary thing. And, you know, we know the saying, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so when the founders of our nation set up our form of government, they set it up with three separate branches of government, a division of powers, a system of checks and balances. And it's not a perfect system, but it's worked pretty well for over 200 years. And most of us would prefer uh, a democratic republic than uh, a dictatorship. But let me submit to you that uh, the reason we are a little bit afraid sometimes of the sovereignty of God, it's, it's because all the leaders that we know, whether they're kings or emperors or dictators like Muammar Gaddafi or prime ministers or presidents, they're all fallen. They're all sinful. The very best above among them have various faults and they make mistakes. And so we put limits on their powers and we require them to get the approval of a legislature or a parliament or a congress. But you know what the problem with that is? Well, the problem is that the people in the legislatures are also fallen and sinful and evil. And sometimes they're just nuts. And uh, so what we end up with is uh, sometimes, quite frequently, I'm not making any comments about today, but quite frequently we end up with a bozo in the White House who's accountable to a bunch of bozos in Congress who in turn are elected by a bunch of bozos. And nobody has absolute power, but they're still all messed up. But God is a sovereign God. He's completely able to do what he wants to do. He doesn't have to send bills down to the church to say, hey, guys, would you pass this? He's sovereign. He's independent, and he's able to do whatever he wants to do. And so the sovereignty of God should give us great hope for the future and for our lives here. Because not only does God have the whole world in his hands, but we're like the clay in the hands of a master potter. He has a plan. He has a design. He has a purpose. And he is molding us and he is making us, you and me and the church and, and peoples and nations, to accomplish his purposes. It's not left in our hands. It's not left to chance. It's not left to a bunch of bozos. It depends on a sovereign, sovereign, super ruler God. The third thing that we want to see this morning is that God actively reigns to fulfill his purposes. The sovereignty of God means that he actively reigns to fulfill his purposes. And so we read in 1 Chronicles 16, 31, let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nation, the Lord reigns. Psalm 93, 1 says, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. He is a God who reigns. 
I know the deists had this idea that God was sort of a divine watchmaker. And he had indeed created this beautiful watch. And he had wound it up and then he sat back and he watched it. But he didn't get involved in the affairs of the world. Uh, he, He didn't correct the time if it got off a little bit. He just watched it. Let me give you another Another illustration here. Uh, I, I love to fly. I love anything about airplanes. One of the men of the church has started to pass along to me his uh, flying magazines after he's through reading with them. And that's, that's what I do as an as a avocation. I, I dream about flying. But, you know, one of the things I would never want to have happen is being in an airplane, in fact, I've actually had nightmares about this, being in an airplane, you know, in a big jetliner, and you're all strapped in there, you know, six across or whatever it is, eight across, and uh, the flight attendants come over the, the intercom, and they say, uh, now, ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we're continuing our flight to Boston. could have been Boston. I, I said Boston. That's where my son is. We're continuing our service to Boston today, and we'd like to ask if there's anyone on the plane who happens to have any experience flying large commercial jet airplanes. If so, would you please raise your hand, and the flight attendant will make their way back to you and escort you to the cockpit. Please enjoy your flight. I mean, you just don't want that. You know, you just, you just don't want to hear that the plane is running on autopilot and there's nobody up there in the cockpit that uh, knows how to fly it. Maybe they all ate the fish, except they don't have any food anymore on planes. You don't want to hear that. But, but, but a lot of people, that's what they think it's like, that, that, that God has got the world on autopilot and uh, he's not really at the controls. He's not really actively flying the plane. We're just back there in the back of the plane, all strapped in. But there's nobody up there. The scriptures say just the opposite. God is a sovereign God, and he's actively ruling and reigning in the world to bring about his purposes. And so... Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. He turns it wherever he wills. And in Ephesians 1, which we read this morning, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, who works all things, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. See, God is at the controls. He's piloting the plane. It's not on autopilot. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, we see this picture of God working to subdue his enemies. And so we read, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now here's the point. 
for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. God is reigning now. God's reign doesn't begin uh, when Christ returns. He's going to return. He's going to rule and reign. And in that day, we'll see the fullness of his reign. But he's reigning now. He's reigning in the hearts of his people. He's reigning as, as he steers the hearts of, of kings and leaders and parliaments and congresses. He's reigning through natural events that take place. He's reigning. He's actively ruling and reigning to bring about a plan that he had purposed a long time ago. There is a pilot at the helm of this ship and of this plane. God is actively working to rule and to reign, to bring about his purposes and to fulfill his promises. And you say, but I don't always see that. I mean, you know, there are terrible things that go on in the world. There are crimes on TV night after night. There are people that go into public places and schools and start shooting innocent people. I, I, I don't see God reigning. I remember a long time ago I saw a story on the, on television. It was about starfish. And, you know, when I was a kid, we would go down to Myrtle Beach and there was a sandbar about as far away from the uh, shore that, that, as you would want to go. I certainly wouldn't want my children to go that far, but we did. And uh, so we would go out there in our little blow-up uh, rafts and boogie boards, and we would go out to this sandbar, which you could stand on. And all around your feet were starfish and shells and all kinds of neat stuff, you know. And, and if you look at those starfish, they're just kind of sitting there. They're just sitting there on the bottom, and, you know, they don't really move. They're not like the fish that are flitting around. They're just sitting there. And you can think, well, these, you know, they don't do anything. They just sit there. But, but someone took a camera, and, and with time-lapse photography, they, they photographed a bunch of these starfish that, that looked like they were just sitting there. And what you found when you speeded it up was they're scurrying all around, and they get into fights and all kinds of things going on. You just can't see it because it's on a totally different time scale than, than the time scale that you and I live in. My friends... It's like that with God. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day, and God is at work ruling and reigning in his world. But his time frame is not our time frame. In fact, I would submit to you, his time horizon is far, far longer than ours. And so we look and say, you know, well, am I better off than I was four years ago? You know, God's probably thinking more in terms of four centuries ago or four millennia ago, you know? Are things changing? Do we see God's rule and his reign emerge when we, when we take a longer view and we see him at work to bring nations under 
his rule and reign. Th- think, about, think about the Christians of the first century, what it must have been like. And they were watching their brothers and sisters be arrested and be taken to the Colosseum and other places where they were thrown to the lions and just terrible, terrible things happened. How easy it would be to say, where's God? Where is this God who's the King of kings and the Lord of lords? I don't see his reign. You know, we're, we're just sheep to be slaughtered here. Take a longer view. 300 years later, that little band of Christians and the faith that they believed conquered the Roman Empire. God is at work. Ruling and reigning, actively working to rule and reign in the world that he created. And so, yes, there are bad things that happen. There are terrible things that take place. But the scripture talks about that. And so we see in the story of Joseph, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He suffers setback after setback. And at the end of his life, and I'm not going to tell the whole story, you know the story. He's uh, been raised up by God to be the number two man in Egypt, to be Pharaoh's uh, prime minister, essentially. And... Their father, Jacob, dies, and the brothers are terrified. With all this power that Joseph now has, he's he's surely going to come and get us now that our father is gone. And Joseph said to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To, to bring about to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, here's a mystery. Here's a mystery. God is working even in the sinful actions of men. He's not the author of sin. He didn't didn't cause the sin, but he can work in it. He can work through it to bring about his purposes. And it was the very act of selling Joseph into slavery that set up the events that would bring deliverance to Jacob's family in a time of famine. Or you want a stronger example of this? Take our Lord. In the book of Acts, in chapter 4, we read, In Peter's message, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Evil men, sinful actions, Condemned an innocent man to death. Condemned the Son of God to the cross. Where was God? God was actively ruling and reigning to bring about whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. 
everything they did to oppose God was simply fulfilling the plan and the purpose that he had, the plan and the purpose he had to secure our salvation. Christ died on the cross. He suffered, he died, his blood was shed so that through his sacrifice, which satisfied the wrath of God, which satisfied the justice of God, we could be saved. And so God is actively reigning because he's a sovereign God. He's actively reigning in mysterious ways, in ways that we can't see. But he's in them nevertheless. There's a great old hymn written by William Cooper called uh, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You may be facing a storm. You may be in the midst of, of a perfect storm in your life and you're thinking, where's God? God moves. He's there. He's there in a mysterious way. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures, up, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. He's at work. And sometimes it seems like the face of providence is frowning. But behind that frown is the smile of God. I remember some years ago I was watching the Today Show and it was just after some American missionaries uh, in Peru had been shot at by the, uh, in an airplane by the Peru Peruvian military. Uh, Ron and Veronica Bowers, she went by Ronnie, Ron and Ronnie. And their two children were in the plane. And the official story is that they were mistakenly thought to be drug runners. But there's a lot of controversy about the incident. And you can go online and you can watch it on YouTube. You can see exactly what happened. But uh, for whatever reason, the bottom line was that the Peruvian uh, jet, military jet, opened fire on this missionary airplane and it, and it killed Ronnie and their seven-month-old daughter, Charity. And the husband, Ron, and their son, Corey, survived. And so a week or two later, they had Ron on the Today Show, and Katie Couric was interviewing him. 
And uh, first she asked about the events, and she expressed her sorrow at his loss and all of these things. But then she began to press him about his faith. Doesn't this make you question your faith? I mean, where was God in this? I mean, you went down there to serve God. You went down there to be a missionary. Where was God? Doesn't this make you question your faith? And I was so proud of Ron Bowers. I don't know if he's Presbyterian. I don't know what his denomination is. I don't know anything about him. But at least twice I heard him say, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. I don't know why. I don't know what he was doing. I grieve. I hurt. It's hard. But God is sovereign. God is at work in mysterious ways. Mysterious ways that you and I can't see. Not on this side of heaven, but he's at work. And finally, and you know I'm only going to be able to touch on this. Finally, the sovereignty of God means that he decisively intervenes to save his people. He decisively intervenes to save his people. Now, this is the most controversial part of the sovereignty of God. And there's just no way I can go through the whole thing in the few minutes we have left today. I'm going to touch on it, and uh, there'll be other times when we can talk about it in more detail. But I think to really understand why this doctrine is so important, to those who really come to understand and embrace the Reformed faith. You first of all have to really, really begin with what is the condition of man? What is our standing before God? And Jesus told the parable of the wedding banquet, and he said the king made a banquet, it was all ready, and he sent out invitations And what happened? Nobody came. They had one excuse after another. One of them had a new cow. That's great. You know, I mean, a new wife, new cow. I don't know. They had all kinds of reasons why they couldn't come to a banquet prepared by a king. And he said, This just can't stand. (laughs) We've got to have a banquet. We've got to have a feast. So go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in because we've got to fill this hall. Jesus also said, it's recorded in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so the Bible presents this picture of people who are so fallen and so sinful and sin has affected every part of our being that we're like the people who receive the invitation to the banquet. We would never come. We would never go. We're dead in our sins. We're just not interested. And if God had not intervened and stepped in decisively to do something, Nobody would have come. 
And nobody would have questioned the justice of God because they were all sinners. None of them accepted the grace of God. God is just. But the Bible says that God is not only just, but that he's merciful. And that faced with a situation where no one would accept the invitation to come. No one would accept the grace and the mercy that was offered. He chose some to be his own possession. And so we read in Ephesians 1, 4, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He adopted us. We didn't adopt him. He adopted us into the family of God. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so we come to Romans 9, which is a whole other sermon, but we just touch on it. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. There's so many more things we could say. There's so many more things we can say. But over and over and over again in the scripture, God talks about his chosen people. It's always amazed me that people who would wrestle with predestination, and you're going to, would have no problem with the idea that the Jews were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. They were his chosen people. I'll hear people say, well, they're the chosen people, but I don't believe in predestination. Well, what do you think the chosen people were? People that God chose. He predestined a people. Now, they're not all Israel who are Israel, and that's a whole other issue. But but the Bible itself introduces this idea of chosen people. And in the New Testament, it's applied to the church. And so Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession." that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you are a believer in Christ, you are part of a chosen race and a royal priesthood because God acted decisively A sovereign God acted decisively to call a people to himself. Predestination is not about God turning away some who were not called, but God calling some when everyone would have turned away if he hadn't done so. God choosing to adopt some into his family when none of us ever would have chosen him. If you come to see this, if you come to embrace it as what the Bible teaches, it will inevitably lead you to two very powerful 
conclusion. The first is absolute humility. Absolute humility, because you will realize that you didn't do anything to, to, to merit your salvation. You, you weren't just a little bit better than that other person who didn't come forward at the invitation. No, all have turned away. No one seeks God, no, not one. But God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And so we're saved by grace alone. And secondly, it will lead you to absolute assurance in your salvation. Because your salvation ultimately does not depend on you. You see, if it depends on you, then maybe you could mess up. Maybe you could lose it. And that's why the people and the churches and the teaching that is consistently in its op- consistent in its opposition to reformed theology also ultimately ends the position ends up in the position that you can lose your salvation you had to make a decision to be saved and you can make a decision and be lost you can fall away but but for those who believe in the sovereignty of god that he acted decisively to call a people, to choose a people, to call a people, to adopt a people, to be his chosen people, then our salvation depends on him and him alone from first to last, and he is a faithful God. One other hymn, and then we'll close. Great old hymn. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. You see, we have this sense that, that, that maybe we're seeking God or maybe I made a decision for God, and, and God does call us to repent. But long before you reach that point of decision, long before you reach that point of commitment, long before you repent and believe, God has called you from the foundation of the world and God has drawn you by the power of His Spirit and He was seeking you long before you ever sought Him. My friends, we should rejoice this morning that the God we worship and serve is a sovereign God. He is supremely exalted over all His creation. He is completely free and able to do whatever he wills. He actively reigns to fulfill his purposes in the world and he decisively intervenes to save a people for himself.